sacred. I'd like to ask for your attention with some considerations on our practice. I am conscious that um, this is our last full day today. I receive notes from you. Well, I feel that some questions yesterday in the groups. I am also conscious of a, a variety of needs and um, that you are at different stages in your practice. Um, I like to acknowledge that what I say will not be of equal use to all of you. There are things which... Uh, may be important for you and I wish you to hear and there are things that um, may not yet be important or may no longer be important to you so uh, please be aware of this uh, there's 50 of you sitting in here and you will have to gauge and only you will be able to gauge that accurately what it is that you need most please take of these instructions and take of these pointers what is of immediate use to you. There may be things that you feel is interesting, but they may not actually be of great use to you. Nobody other than you can make this decision. Yeah, I'd like to acknowledge this and I'd like you to uh, be responsible. Yeah. I'm also conscious that, you know, some of the aspects of this practice, they they um, there's a tremendous depth to them. They come from a long and profound wisdom tradition, even though they're mediated by my own ignorance and you are at the peril of getting the mediated version of that wisdom tradition. Um, this tradition assumes that you give some time, some energy, some... Uh, some of your heart to that practice. This is not a weakened technique. You, know, you understand the whole notion that underpins Buddhist mind training. This is a, it's a larger project. Yeah. This is not a sort of a, a nutritional supplement project where you eat two a day and forget about the rest. Yeah. So be aware that you know, Satipatthana practice or the cultivation of developing mindfulness on the basis of uh, experiences of body, experiences of pleasure, displeasure, experience of affect, mind state, mood, emotion, and the experience of thought, image, and patterns in thoughts and images. Um, this is a big field of work. This is not something that can be accomplished in great brevity of time, even if you're gifted and even if you're very dedicated. So I would like to ask you for kind of reasonable expectations. You know, measure your expectations um, by your willingness to put in energy, for example. Now, there must be a kind of correlation there. I'm also conscious that we have um, not very much time and it is crucial for you that you identify in the face of not having much time 
that some things are more important than other things. That is not to be answered generally. That is only to be answered personally and individually. Some things right now are more important to you than other things to you. And for your neighbor, this may be a differing assessment. Yeah. So be aware of this. I deem it indispensable that we learn to still our minds. I hope I have made that clear. There is no way that you can learn insight tricks and without actually learning to still the function, the activity, the process of your mind and gain profound life-transforming insights. I do not believe that. Yeah. So it is necessary for you that you can modulate the speed, the intensity of your inner worlds and that you can sustain continual awareness on things even unpleasant or even boring or even disturbing. Yeah? I think this is an absolute prerequisite. So, as much as I would wish I could teach you finger-snap techniques that help you to fall back into a primordial awareness of your pristine awakening nature, um, I cannot do that. And I would not want to be responsible for f trying to fool you into doing that. Um, at the same time, you know, finding adequate stillness can become a pursuit that is endless, that appears endless. And our lives are fraught with complexities. Um, even if you happen to live in a monastery, and I have happened to live in a monastery for the larger part of my adult life, you know, you will not escape complexity. Life is complicated, even in monasteries. Life is full of relationship, even in monasteries. Um, so, there is really no way that we can escape complexity in our lives. As soon as we relate, we are likely to uh, bring up echoes of how we have been related to a long time ago. And this will kind of mix and intermingle. So in the midst of all this, what is really most needed for me right now? That's a good question. That's where insights start. Insight starts with the willingness to orient yourself. Rather than starting with a fixed idea that before I don't have second jhana, I'm not even going to bother trying to practice understanding what's happening in my relationships. Um, you actually try to find a way to still the mind to the degree that is possible right now. And then you are willing to look at those things that stop you from becoming even more quiet. Now, you want to do this in a negotiated way. If you just wait till the mind is still enough, you risk that your mind will never be still enough. You risk that you just uh, fall prey to your perfectionism <clears throat> As you may have uh, perfectionism in other areas of life, you just have a feeling that you will never really be still enough. So you will need to be prepared to work with imperfect conditions. Some stillness, 
a degree of quiet, a degree of stability of mind. Now all this is important and uh, in what sequence this comes, you will have to decide. You will, this decision will be based upon what you have concluded in your orientation attempts in your session to figure out what's actually happening for you right now. The teaching of samatha, of stillness, and the teaching of vipassana have uh, received a lot of attention in the West. And um, I believe some of that attention hasn't actually clarified the issues very much, to be honest. In the words of uh, a famous Thai teacher, his name is Ajahn Chah, that you cannot really uh, pick up a branch without picking up both ends of the branch. You know, even if you pick up one end of the branch, if you pick it up long enough, the second end of the branch will come as well. You know? And he likened that to how you practice meditation. Even if you pick up the, the inside, the vipassana end, you know, the branch will have a second end to it. Maybe that's not where you grasped it and you picked it up, but if you pull it up long enough, the second end will be part of that, what you have picked up. Sometimes the teaching of stillness and insight are described as two different methods in Buddhist meditation, or even as two different paths. Believe me, I have read quite a bit of the Buddhist teaching and I have had the privilege of practicing with people uh, of considerable experience and I, I must affirm to you that there is no justification in what I have understood of the Buddhist teaching that the Buddha taught two paths or two distinct, uh, possibly mutually exclusive techniques of insight and uh, stillness. I have no reason to believe that on the basis of what I have read or what I have heard or what I have understood. Yeah. The aspects of, sin- of stillness and the aspect of insight are one and the same path. They're one and the same practice. They're one and the same meditation. They're different accents within one and the same story. Yeah. And I would like to convey that conviction. Um, do not play these things against each other. Try not to make yourself crazy with... Uh, the belief that you are following a particular inside path and you don't have any need for a samadhi or you're following a, a path of mental stillness and you you don't want to be sidetracked by trivial insights along the way to your pristine samadhi. Yeah. Don't fall for any of this. Any insight will need the strength and the weight of some of your stillness. The more transparent, the more still, the more placid the mind is, the more trenchant its insights, the more transforming its understanding derived will be. Come back to Ajahn Chah, he says, you know, Vipassana is like being in the dark and lighting a match. It's great, it's bright, and as soon as you get to see a little bit what's around you, you kind of, you have your fingers burned and it gets dark again. That's what's vipassana is without samatha. Um, 
Samatov about Dupassana is like making a candle. Have you ever made candles? You, know, you kind of you dip the wick into wax, and then in water you dry it. You know, wax, water, dry it. Candle grows nice and strong, <clears throat> but there's still no light. You know, you got a real lovely bulky candle, but it doesn't really give much light. So the ideal scenario is obviously you have some candle body and you have lit that candle so that your light actually lasts for a moment. And ideally, you would get proper gradings, yeah? You would say, okay, you come to a few retreats and we kind of give you belts or we give you markings and you get credit points. You're a sort of a yellow belt meditator or a brown belt meditator, 700 credit point uh, meditator. <clears throat> but it doesn't quite work like that. You will need to assess how much time you have available. If you're here on retreat, obviously you dedicate more time to stillness meditation, simply because the conditions are reasonably good, and this is a moment where you can uh, still the mind to a higher degree than maybe is possible when you're at home. At the same time, you can't just live on retreat. Even if you're living on retreat, there is a moment where you actually decide to turn the clarity of your mind to the things that stop the mind from being even more clear. The very things you have decided are maybe meditational obstacles, you don't want to bother with right now. Instead, you practice stillness. Those very things at some stage become legitimate objects. You give them another name. Yeah? You baptize them no longer meditational obstacles. You baptize them now as legitimate objects of your meditative inquiry. Yeah? They get renamed, relabeled, reframed. Now, you're a bit selective. You don't just want to turn anything into a legitimate object of your inquiry. You want to take some of the loudest ones, some of the most obstreperous ones, the things that are recurring. Maybe it's as simple and straightforward as pain and your response to pain. Um, maybe it is a, th- a recurring theme that comes, throws up images, thoughts. You find yourself whenever there is a lull in your practice, you'll find yourself circling around this theme or this person or this situation. And you will need to identify what is happening there. You use the clarity gained in meditation to actually be with that which seems difficult or obsesses you or fascinates you or repels you. You try to relate to this rather than just not have it and go back to the breath This is one stage of trying to still the mind. You are actually allowing this to be there. Now, that is easier said than done. Some things we don't want to be with, and we have to do considerable massage work on our minds to actually allow that this comes in. Some of you asked me about sleepiness yesterday, and this is a very clear example. We don't want to have sleepiness, so we not just um, try not to feel it, we try not to think about it, we simply try not to have it. Yeah? 
and that wish not to have it easily translates into a form of aversion, into a form of non-acknowledgement when it actually starts. Yeah. Psychologists are quite <coughs> blunt in this. They speak of denial. Yeah. If you decide to not think a thought a second time, that's where denial starts, yeah. just to be really strict. Yeah. The active, determined effort to stop a thought and to not think that thought another time, this is where denial starts. Let me make that more precise. This is where suppression starts. Yeah. And just be clear, you will need that. Yeah. There's no way that you can afford uh, not trying to suppress anything. Civilization is based on your willingness to suppress certain impulses and urges. I'm very grateful if you should have to have the urge of hitting your neighbor that you suppress that urge as soon as it arises. Um, our safety, our harmoniousness here depends on your willingness to suppress such urges should you have them. There are other urges you may have and I would also uh, be grateful if you suppress them, if they, say, compromise the safety or the uh, confidentiality of our situation here. But you will probably be agreement, in agreement with me that suppression is a rather sort of muscular uh, response to impulses. It's not very subtle, and it may not necessarily provide much insight of what's actually happening there. It's a controlling attempt. Now, to suppress something is one part of the story. To suppress something and then pretend it hasn't happened is a second part of the story. Yeah? I understand that psychoanalysis calls the second part repression yeah? or the denial of something having happened. Yeah? This is a very different ballgame. While I think suppression of impulses is unavoidable, I think pretending that they haven't occurred and we haven't suppressed them um, is a dangerous technique. <coughs> These things come back through the back door. <coughs> they creep up in your dreams, or they catch you when you're off guard. Or they um, don't catch you, but they keep rattling the bars somewhere in the recesses of your psyche, and you live in a constant state of horror of what demons you have locked up somewhere, you know, to be graphic. So, while at one point we need to give priority to some things and say, this is my attention, this is what it takes care of right now, and we leave out other things, there is to be a negotiation necessary when we release our focus of something and open and see what actually wants to come in. What actually stops the mind from focusing more profoundly? What actually preoccupies my mind? You know, I cannot guarantee that I'm going to get what I want or that I'm going to give myself what I want, but I, at least I want to know what I want. Yeah? There needs to be a space where I'm actually willing to acknowledge the things that trouble or that uh, fascinate my mind. Now the question is how we engage with these forces, how we engage with themes in our lives, how we engage with things that are um, 
uh, intoxicating or that are uh, threatening or flooding. And the degree in which I am relating to these things hinges very much on my capacity to negotiate. Yeah? If I don't negotiate, I'm either running away or I'm falling into these things. Think of an emotion. Yeah? Who hasn't been angry? Anger floods. It comes up and it threatens to become more and more and more intense. And most of us feel frightened by that. Most of us feel that anger is unpleasant. It makes unpleasant things with the body. It makes unpleasant things with the mind. Um, We fear the consequences having anger overtly happening Uh, brings about in our relationship. We fear the loss of trust from others. We fear the loss of affection from others. We may fear the loss of self-respect. We may fear regret when later the anger has gone and we come to acknowledge what we have said or done. um, So we all are quite conscious that anger has many disadvantages and we have good reasons to be afraid of some of its effects on us. At the same time, not trying to relate to anger doesn't really make the anger go away. It just makes it go uh, underground. Enacting our anger, kind of jumping in and say, oh yes, this is my lovely anger energy, I'll need this, I'll, you know, give me my sword, give me my bow and arrow, as they say, yeah, and... Um, I wage battle with the strength of this anger doesn't really help me come to terms with anger either. The extreme of dissociating from it, going away from the anger, repressing it, or the other extreme of going into the anger, both of them have consequences that are undesirable. And yet anger happens. My competence being with that experience hinges on how confident I am approaching this state, being able to have that experience without that experience having me. Yeah. Now that's, that is space is possible to be found in meditation. It is possible to allow yourself to feel an experience without becoming that experience or without being in the service of that emotion. In our example, it is anger. It is quite possible, if the mind has a certain degree of stillness, and if you're clear that you will not act on angry impulses, it is possible to allow yourself to actually feel this. In fact, having made the promise to yourself that you will not act on such an an impulse, will even more allow you to feel that. Now, this is an alternative to suppression and enactment. You will be agreeing with me that this is a middle way. Being willing to have it, at the same time not going along with it completely and enacting it in speech and in bodily behavior, and in directed intention 
as three forms of how we can enact things. And at the same time, not repressing it. I'm not pretending it's not happening. I'm not trying to make it go away. I'm not trying to stop it. I'm not trying to not feel it. I am willing to feel it. No, I'm not going to act it out on the world. Now, this is a very creative, this is a, a very challenging at and yet a very transformative space I can engage, I can be in. It is necessary that meditation goes there. There is a time and there is a, a moment in your practice where you need to be willing to actually meet the things that are difficult in your life, that you feel are um, inordinately pulling you or pushing you, frightening you, fascinating you. So, how to gauge how much I can load on my plate? Yeah? This is not easy. Um, some of us are cocky and like to, just don't bother with that samadhi stillness business, I'm feeling pretty good now, just bring it on. Yeah? Some of us are frightened and say, well, really... Before I can really deal with big, even smallish emotions, you know, I want to be a lot more confident that my samadhi is not rocked. Yeah, so let's wait a little longer. Yeah, so you have to find out first whether you're cocky or frightened. Yeah, you have to find out to which lot you belong, and then you learn. Like you learn with your posture, you have a habit of turning your shoulder forward. Fair enough. You check whether your shoulder is forward. You can't feel your shoulder, fair enough. You feel it where your hand is. You feel it where your hip is. You, you kind of, you look at the mirror and say, oh, it's forward. You know, how would it be if it was back? You kind of, you do that a couple of times. and You get a feel for how it is. You get a feel for your pattern. We all do that. You do that with kids. You do that with partners. You get a feel for how it is. If you feel trusting enough to say how it is for you, you can say that. And the other gets a picture of how it feels for you, not how it looks to him, but how it is for you. Yeah? That's the beginning of change. The same you do with the things that work in your meditation. So you end up practically with a kind of shuttle diplomacy practice that consists of part stilling the mind, part samatha exercise. If you're at home, I would say at least half of your time go into stillness practice. Before you start trying trying to tackle your big challenges, give yourself half an hour of sitting still and stilling the mind, you know, making the mind more peaceful, slowing it down, grounding, earthing, centering, stilling. And then you look what's most dominant. Can you be with that? That's the first. Can I be with this? Can I be in relationship with this um, anger or with this sadness or with this pain? And then you look what's happening. Can I maintain a kind of regular distance? Most of these states, they want to suck me in. Either they they repel me away or they want to pull me in. And my first task is to be able to stay in relationship and hold hold it rather than be pulled in or be pushed away. I'm going to be there and I'm going to stay with it. Huh? 
That would be the first stage of inquiry. Before you can do that, anything else seems too ambitious. You know, if it's kind of frightening you away, then you have to learn kind of crawling back in there and bearing with it. Making maybe the space wider, maybe be more patient, maybe breathe into the fear it evokes. Yeah? If it is more of the pulling nature, again, you need to be sure that you can stay there without being reeled in. You cannot investigate something that just pulls you in. You're going to be part of the problem before you can sink a second sort, if you're going to get pulled in. So you find out whether your samadhi is strong enough, whether your stillness and your mindfulness is strong enough and continuous enough to be in a continued negotiated relationship with the quality of your experience. Now you will ask me, do do you speak of formal meditation practice or do you speak of the rest of my life? In formal meditation practice, your chances to gain stillness are best. Nevertheless, if you dedicate all of your meditation practice to just stilling the mind, you will keep making the mind still, and then you will um, go and do what you need to do in your life, and the stillness will only partially come to the fruition, uh, will come to you only partially to your life. So it is useful that some part of your formal meditation practice be dedicated to opening up. You say, okay, it is still, still enough. What needs addressing? in my life? Where does my attention need to go? What are the things that are big in my life right now? What could benefit from some sustained inquiry? You open yourself up, you ask this question, you in, you create a space, and then you look what comes into that space. Yeah? The important things will come. And then you see whether you can maintain a relationship to these things without falling in, without being scared away. That's the absolute first step. If you fall in or if you get scared away, you go back and allow the mind to become more still. You do the things that you know help the mind becoming more still. Now obviously if you can do that in the rest of your lives, fantastic. Yeah. Formal meditation practice will help on retreats, but also at home. It will generally help you to recharge batteries. It will help you to recenter your mind. It will help you to get your bearings. Um, and it will help you to create the safe space in which it is allowable for you to feel things that are strong. Or to feel things that you feel not easily uh, access to yeah some 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 things that are, are not just strong some things they pretend just to not be there yeah they need more encouragement so you need to create the space and the stillness practice creates that space your intention to understand and s- deeply creates that space your promise that you do not act out on Impulses you have understood to be unwholesome will help to create that space. So, if we practice today, 
I suggest you take along everything I have said so far. The things about posture, the things about centering in the body, creating um, a body space in your awareness rather than just having individual episodic sensations, creating an embodied space. The the inner space of your experience uh, benefits a lot if it is embodied, if it has an awareness that is capable of feeling the bodily reality it produces to be in that experience. And then you use the breath as a vehicle to still, to refine, to connect. You look for things that help you to get more intimate with that breath. Because it's the breathing that will tell you how you feel. Every change in your mood, every change in your intentionality will have an effect on your breathing. If you're in close relationship to your breathing, you will feel that. The breath will tell you what's happening. It will also help you to refine the mind. Yeah? I have, I'd like to repeat this, that with the help of the breath, you can refine the mind. The mind resembles the things that it picks up and continually relates to. So if the breath is fine because the body is still, then the attention of the mind will make the mind more subtle, more malleable, more fluid when that attention stays with the breath that is fine and gentling. If you feel that the mind has reached a certain degree of stillness, you open up and see what is there that wishes to be addressed in my life. What are things that are important? What are things that are urgent? What are things that I do not understand? What are things that are painful? What are things that are crucial that I act upon them? Can I investigate? Can I hold them? Imagine this gesture of holding. Being with something. Not fixing it. Don't try to be missionary about it. Don't argue. You are willing to hold the truth of what is happening in your life. And can you hold it without losing the space? That's the prerequisite for further inquiry. If you feel you're losing the space, be very sure that you actually lose it. If you feel that this is no doubt that you're losing the space, that you get sucked in or pushed away, you go back to to the breath. You go back to the body. Chances are you will um, not just get that right the first time. So be prepared to be humble and acknowledge. Um, It's useful to know how it feels when you get sucked in or scared away or fopped off. The mind has many faces and it's necessary that you know its language. Do ask yourself, do you know how how it feels when you get engrossed in something. Do you know how it feels if you dissociate? Do you know how it feels when you space off? Do you know how you feel when it is depressed? Do you know how dullness feels? Are you sure this is just thinking or this is anxiety? 
Can you make a distinction? Are you know? Are you aware of these things? Have you familiarity with the distinction? These are useful ways of knowing how the mind operates, and it's part of a meditator's job to learn to distinguish that. Not for statistics, but it will be very difficult to deal with anxiety as long as you believe your thoughts. You see. The thoughts will not say, I'm anxious. The thoughts will say, it's very likely going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah. So if you go with the story, you miss, you miss actually the sound of anxiety. So it's crucial for you, for your capacity, your skill, the, you know, your, your empowerment for being with your mind and understanding the movements of mind that you can distinguish these things. Rather just to kind of sit here, grit your teeth and hope it goes away and your samadhi will one day be strong enough that you just kind of plow through all this, you know, sordid sort of stuff. Yeah. The being with stuff is a great talent, but it doesn't actually necessarily provide much insight. You want to understand that the only thing that helps you be free is understanding it. In English, it's so beautiful. You actually you have to stand under it. Yeah, you, know? you have to be willing to have it. That's the first noble truth. You know, the the hortative sentence in there is uh, parinyaya. It is to be understood. That's what it says in the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta. Dukkha, that which is painful, is to be understood. Now, dukkha is not the bad things that are happening in your life. Dukkha is the psychological space you inhabit when bad things happen in your life. That's the difference. Dukkha is a psychological statement. It's not that things crumble. It's what it does to you that things crumble. That's the dukkha. And that is something you need to understand. The transformative moment is your willingness to be with that and to understand that. Okay. Yeah. Please. Well, the first is you'd acknowledge this anxiety, and the second is you direct your attention to the place you feel the anxiety in the body. You know, that's your starting point. If you engage with the story, you're gone. Yeah? You just think about that part of your life, and generally you have lots to think about. So, Before you go any further, you want to be sure that you can feel the somatic aspect of that anxiety in your body and that you can sustain your attention there for some time. Yeah. So your willingness to be with that story means your willingness to be with the unpleasant sensation of anxiety. In my case here in the pit of my, you know, underneath my siphoid bone. Yeah? And I'm willing to be there with that unpleasant feeling. That is the starting point. You're not going to sit here and think, well, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to work out my anxiety by thinking about the thing that makes me anxious. That's not working with anxiety. That's being part of anxiety. You know, that's feeding the pattern. 
So you want to get in touch, you want to shift from channel 4 to channel 1. Yeah? On channel 4 you can't handle anxiety, otherwise you wouldn't be anxious. If you could handle anxiety, you wouldn't, it wouldn't trigger anxiety. So there's no way you're going to handle it on channel 4 with content, image, story. You have to switch back to channel 1. That's the body. Where does the body feel anxious? Channel 2. How unpleasant is this? Yeah. That's where you steady your attention and take it from there. Unless you're willing and capable of actually being there, this is not going to transform. It's just going to create more thought and the thought is going to create more emotion. Yeah? So the meditative approach is you know, strictly back, channel one and channel two, being able and willing in a continued way to sustain awareness on the nature of anxiety as an embodied experience. It's very difficult to be, you know, to be consistently anxious. Very difficult. Ten deep breaths in that area and you will notice something happening. Not, not just the nice bits are impermanent, you know, also. The not so nice bits are also impermanent. So anxiety will subside or change or fluctuate as soon as you stop feeding it with thoughts. It lives off thought. If you leave channel four, it cannot be nourished. Yeah. Yeah, please. Just, just on that one, actually, to take that analogy of the channel, which I really love, because I, since I got into this stuff, it's occurred to me that channel two is the kind of eyebrow one that they have to heavily subsidise to get on the end. Right. <laughs> Sorry. As a not. <laughs> First of all, I'm sorry if my English TV analogy, um, I'm not an English TV watcher generally, so I, I don't have much uh, connotations for channels, English TV channels, so bear with me here. Uh, the, you know, the, the inquiry, and this maybe follows up from what Faith was asking, the inquiry obviously if you stay with the experience of anger, you will notice that things are generally not as unilateral as we make them out to be. You know, Generally, there is a kick. If we are repeatedly angry, angry then there is a kick somewhere. We gain something from being angry. You know, the psyche is economical. It, uh, it doesn't repeat things that are perfectly useless to us. Generally, we are a lot more candid about you know we get out of something um, 
and um, we do gain quite a bit of things out of anger. You know, vitalization, power. Suddenly, people take us serious. Um, I feel alive. People are nicely frightened of me. You know, they don't take me serious if I'm nice and polite and diplomatic. And you know, once my fangs are out, I'm actually, you know, they they're afraid of me, and I quite enjoy that. You know, if I don't feel much power in my life, then being angry may actually be quite a relief. You know, quite a desirable sort of experience. I'm big. So, Buddhist psychology is quite sober in this. It says things will change, and you are only willing to let go under four conditions. One of the conditions is the acknowledgement that it arises, meaning it isn't always there. Uh, that it arises and how it arises. Um, the second one is that it disappears, that it, it, it has, shows what disappearance. Yeah? Um, that it disappears and how it disappears again. And the third one is what is the advantage of it? Yeah. The, uh, the term strictly is the gratification of it, yeah, the asada, what I enjoy of it, what it gives me. And the fourth one is the disadvantage. Yeah, it's the price we pay. And only when these four are held, you know, they're on the table. Mostly the negative ones are on the table and the positive ones, we don't, we're not public about this, yeah. So, yes, I would like to get rid of my anger. No, I'm quite enjoying being angry because I get what I want when I'm angry. Um, unless these four things are really on the plate, we are not going to let go. We don't want to get out of this. You know? We don't want to get out of this because the Buddha said so, because people don't like it, because uh, Buddhists really shouldn't do that kind of thing. This is all not going to work. We're not going to let go unless... We truly acknowledge that the pain is bigger than the gain. Yeah. That the suffering it causes is bigger than what we get out of it. And obviously this investigation only is fruitful if we actually are straight about it, you know, about what the advantage we, we get out of something. Now all of our emotions have great advantages. You know, you can be depressed and this is quite convenient. It's unpleasant, it you know, dims your pleasure and your, your libidinous side of life. It uh, makes you feel weak and energyless. But uh, it's quite convenient for, in terms of responsibility. You, know, you can always blame somebody else because you don't have energy and you're depressed and you're small and helpless. You know, you're never to be blamed for anything. You, know, you don't have to own up. It's, it's quite convenient. So you're too small a number to really change anything. So... It's pointless to even ask you to change anything, or it's pointless to risk anything. It's kind of sad and tragic, but then again, it's kind of quite comfy in some way. You know, you don't die of it. There may be good advantages for being depressed, and a lot, you know, for being <coughs> needy. You know, as long as you have people looking after you, it's quite okay being needy. If it works, you know, I just throw a wobbly and then has always worked, and I get looked after. Somebody's going to rush around and fix it for me. So, you know, all of our sufferings, in some way, they have advantages. And unless we're willing to own up that this is what we get out of something, 
we're unlikely to really change, to get rid of it. Yeah, please. You need to inquire. Yeah. You need to take up a situation that surprised you in your life. You need to go back. This practice is called Dionysomana Sikara. You go very slowly over this situation and you try to make yourself clear what has actually happened. What is the sequence of events? You know, when did, did I really get sad when he said this or it was his eyes or, you know, you need to slow down and feel what comes up. You need to do that in your meditation. Yeah. Obviously, if these emotions occur in your life, and if they don't occur in your meditation, your meditation doesn't address this. Yeah. Now, this may mean that you uh, can still your mind, but it, you need to put that stillness to use, to inquire into the things that are not still in your life. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you just oscillate between making the mind still under ideal conditions and living in the feeling that um, these things have not any reality in your life, and then finding out that they do have a reality in your life, but not being able to use the stillness you gain in your meditation, obviously, to work with those things, to inquire into them, and to maybe pacify them or even transform them. You see, if you just make the mind still, it will go still. But the stillness, samadhi, is a condition. It will, under certain circumstances, it will be more easily obtained. When these circumstances change, you will lose that again. You cannot cash in samadhi at the end of the retreat. What you can cash in is insight, you see. <laughs> So you need, to, you, you need to convert your samadhi chips into insight chips. Otherwise, you keep, just, you keep doing what we would call palliative care. Yeah? You can <laughs> pacify the mind and go back into the world and the life that makes you crazy, go crazy again, feel exhausted, come back into the retreat, pacify the mind. That's better than not pacifying the mind. But obviously, you know, you would wish some crossover there from from the stillness into the bit that is difficult. This meditation should make your life, should make you more competent. Yeah. So what you describe is somebody who has learned, obviously, to make the mind more still, and to need to transport that stillness into some of the areas that are not still in your life. Um, if that doesn't happen on its own, you need to encourage 
you may need to take up when the mind is still you need to take up a memory of something that was difficult and kind of go very slowly through the sequence of what has happened there yeah. you, not the emotion the memory yeah um, I don't think you will need to do that often it is very likely that you will find through doing that a couple of times, you will find access to the emotion through this. You will find access to that part of your mind which responds strongly in life. You see, Buddhist psychology is very clear. There are various layers in which we can mentally be afflicted. The first layer is activity, behavior. For that, we need to practice sila, you know, quite clear ethical guidelines, restraint, clarity, what we want to act on and what not. The second layer is the inner psychological experience. This is the inner mental state. That samadhi is really helpful because it makes that more still. And when it becomes more still and more slow, we gain insight in how it functions. Yeah? And the third layer, <coughs> samadhi doesn't touch. The third layer is subterranean. Yeah, Buddhist psychology calls this anusaya. This is the latent tendency stage. Now, latent tendencies you don't know unless they're triggered, you know, because they're latent. Yeah. So however still the mind becomes, the latent tendency is not eradicated. It's not gone. You only know about it when it gets triggered. And obviously it doesn't get triggered in your formal meditation practice. It gets triggered with people and... So you need to make sure that some of your stillness gets applied into an inquiry. Yeah? That at the moment the mind is still, you can more easily look deeper. You can more quietly understand. And you need to make sure that this crossover happens. So maybe you can invite something in. I'm grateful for your question. I am conscious that this is pertinent to many other people. Yeah. Yeah, please. Um, you talked about the negative emotions, but what if, what if it's something we're not sure we want to let go of? What if it's the one we're more positive? Well, you pay the price, basically. <clears throat> that's, that's what we do, you know. There are things we don't want to let go of, and you just, you know, pay the price for it. You hold on to, and there will be some gratification, some reward, and there will be some pain. And it's better to know that. It's better to know that you're not wanting to let go of something, than to not know that you're holding on and then it's painful. The, cl- the clearer you make your choice, the more upfront you are, the more easy it is to be responsible for that choice. The worst is if you feel you have had no choice and it hurts anyway. That's the worst situation. If you think, okay... I, uh, against better advice, I have followed this one, but I wanted, that's what my choice was, uh, and it was painful, or it hurts, or it was nice in the beginning, and afterwards it was difficult, or that's where I have landed. It's a lot easier to forgive yourself, it's a lot easier to change your mind, it's a lot easier to live with the consequences when you have made a conscious choice. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good question. What do I not want to let go of? My opinions, my meditation object.
um, you know, there's, we all have things we don't want to let go of, and it's good to know them, quite honestly know them. Yeah. Good. It is 10.30. Um, if this is too confusing, if it gets too complicated, go back to the breath, go back to the posture. In fact, even if it doesn't seem complicated, make sure you don't lose these, yeah? The mind is capable of growing, of becoming still, and it is... Uh, there are strength in there which you may not believe possible for yourself. Yeah. If you're willing to be with, um, if you're willing to go into uncharted territory in yourself, then you, you're likely to meet some of this. But obviously, it takes dedication, it takes courage, it takes some guts, some tenacity takes curiosity, takes all kinds of things. No, not one of them will take you through. Um, and if you find time, please practice. You know, make space. I know it is not easy to find time in a busy life to make space. But the major problem we face today is not attachment to samadhi or it's not, it's, it's the fragmentation of our mind. It's the speed it's the mentalization of our experience. Not just because mental experience is bad or irrelevant. It is not. It is not bad or it is not irrelevant. But to the degree we are obsessed with what's going on in the thought department of our mind, we become less capable of attending to physical things, to emotional things. Yeah? So on one level, the imbalance in which we preoccupy ourselves with mind stuff is its doubly detrimental, partly because many, many things that have to do with happiness in our lives cannot be resolved in the realm of thinking. And also getting used to this realm more and more means that our awareness keeps expecting things to be in the, in the, of the nature of thought, fast, sharp, clear, chiseled. And we lose our capacity to be with things like body sensations or the slower movements of an emotion. Or yeah, It's like if you're working a whole day with a computer, you know, you find people sometimes really agonizingly slow. You know? Or you keep looking for the switch off button in people, or, you know, or kind of, can I shut down this program, please? Yeah, yeah. If you, so if you geared to one set of references, you know, another set of references may be very different, and something in you is impatient or unwilling to engage with this. So channel one and channel four don't have the same speed. If you are used to operating in channel four most of the time, channel one can seem endlessly boring or just ineffective or unclear, just murky. And may make it difficult to actually be there, extend awareness there. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.